perseverance or patience the reality that God's timing is perfect but isn't our timing needs to be something we get really comfortable with because if we don't get comfortable with it we just start to try and force God's hand and pretend like it's God and then we shouldn't do that so we have to learn how to trust the goodness of God and that God's timing is perfect we don't need to impose timing upon him God's timing is always perfect That sounds great in theory, but when you actually have to wait on the Lord, it gets a little harder to believe, doesn't it? Pastor Daniel today is going to remind you through the life of the Israelites how much better it is to wait on God. He knows all things and is working every detail out in your life and in the lives of those people you'll be interacting with. Instead of charging ahead, trust God and wait for His leading. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Joshua chapter 15 with part one of his message, Judah's Inheritance. Joshua 15. So the book of Joshua is the sixth book in your Bible. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of Moses, as they're known commonly, and then, of course, the book of Joshua. And as we're in chapter 15, we're in the the second half of the book of Joshua in this series that we're calling Homestead because now we see the children of Israel actually walking in and settling in to the land that God had promised them all the way back in the time of Abraham. And it's really important to realize that from the time God promised them the land until now that they're actually settling into the land, it was over 400 years. And what it reminds us, and I think if we're not careful, we don't even realize it, is that God's timing for the fulfillment of his promises is not instantaneous. And that's a very challenging thing, I think, for us, especially in an immediate gratification culture like we live in. Right? It's like we're so used to, like, I want it all. I want it now. I I deserved it yesterday. And so we have no sense of the reality that God has a perfect timing. I remember when I first got saved. So I got saved in my early twenties. And I remember just being very desirous of a spouse. You know, it's like I had gone from not growing up in the Lord, making all sorts of mistakes, and then I get saved, and I'm like, you know, Lord, I really want a spouse. I mean, it's like I'm kind of lonely, and I'm trying to honor you with my life, and it'd be really great if you brought somebody. And I remember when that girl didn't show up, or and especially when I stopped trying to make every girl that I met who was a Christian be that person, I remember I was just like, Lord, I don't understand why you're delaying. I don't understand it, Lord. And then along the way, I felt like the Lord said, Daniel, the reason I'm delaying is because you would not be a blessing to one of my daughters in the state that you're in. (laughs) 
Our God is the God of truth, and I'm so grateful for it. But that, like, that reality stopped me in my tracks, because then I was like, oh, wait a second. So this isn't just about me and what I want, even though your word tells me that he who finds a wife finds good things and favor from the Lord, and it's not good that man be alone, you know, that I'll make a helper, a helpmate comparable to him, a companion that's good for him, all this stuff. I knew all these things. There are promises in there. And I was like, but yeah, but you're not ready. And I actually don't just want to give you a companion so you're not lonely. I actually want you to be a blessing to one of my daughters. And now all of a sudden that reality changed because now I'm like, okay, so God's actually really smart. Because when he said that, I'm like, yeah, I probably wouldn't be a blessing to anybody right now. Like I'm just, I'm messed up, you know? And so God had a timing and, and a perfect timing for it. But the thing is, is that for most of us, we are not interested in God's timing on things like that, are we? We want it. And so what you do is you take the first person who is a Christian and looks your way. You're like, there it is. My soulmate. But no, it's just, we don't trust the Lord. And what's amazing is now we see the fulfillment of God placing the children of Israel and what he has for them. And you realize that God's timing is just different from ours. But God's timing is perfect. And I just felt as I was kind of going over this over the last number of days that I was supposed to remind all of you that if you are not willing to wait for God's timing, you will end up with an Ishmael. So if you remember the story, of course, is God had promised Abraham or Abram and Sarah a child and it was taking too long. And so Sarah had a plan. I want you to take Hagar, my, my maidservant, and I want you to, it was another arranged marriage. And then, you know, that child would be the child of promise. But that wasn't what God had. That was just Sarah's and Abraham's way of making what God promised happened. And we have thousands upon thousands of years of history to show the issue that that's been. And God's timing is perfect and in an immediate culture that knows no perseverance or patience the reality that god's timing is perfect but isn't our timing needs to be something we get really comfortable with because if we don't get comfortable with it we just start to try and force god's hand and pretend like it's god and then we shouldn't do that so we have to learn how to trust the goodness of god and that god his timing is perfect we don't need to impose timing upon him and so Here in Joshua 15, we find the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. And now what's interesting is out of all of the tribes, Judah's inheritance gets the most discussion. And that's by design, not by chance. Because if you know the Bible, you realize that out of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah was the fourth son, but ended up being the son who is the recipient of all of God's promises because everybody before Judah had made some sort of horrendous mistake. Some things went on. And so Judah ends up being the primary recipient of the, the greatness of God's plan through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you think about even all of the history of the children of Israel, they settle in the land, but then as time goes on, you really just think of the children of Israel as a whole as Ephraim and as Judah. Ephraim, that when after Solomon and Solomon's son Rehoboam, when the unified 
country split to 10 tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. The two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin, were known as Judah because Judah was the biggest. Now, what they knew of as Israel or the 10 northern tribes is often called Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest tribe. But really, when you think about all the tribes, Judah's the one that everyone remembers because it was the tribe of the great King David and his son Solomon and ultimately of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So it's not by chance that when we look at the inheritance that God was given in the promised land, Judah's inheritance is described first and it's actually described the most specifically because it's actually by the design of the Holy Spirit who inspired the human authors, the inheritance of the tribe of Judah is meant to be a foretelling of God's ultimate inheritance when the people of God find their home not in the land but in heaven and in Judah because of the finished work of Jesus. Does that make sense? So jumping right on in, it says this in Joshua 15, picking up in verse 1, it says, So this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. The border of Edom in the wilderness of Zin, southward was the extreme southern boundary, and their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. Then it went out to the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along Hezron, went up to Adar, and went around to Kark Ah. That's sorry. <laughs> from there it passed towards Asmon and, and went out from the brook of Egypt, and the border ended at the sea. This shall be your southern border. The east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan and the border of the northern quarter began at the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan and the border went up to Beth Hagla and passed along the north of Beth Arba and the border went up to the stone of Bohan the son of Reuben and then the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Achor and it turned northwards to Gilgal which is before the ascent of Adumimim which is on the south side of the valley the border continued towards the waters of En Shemesh and ended at En Rogel and the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebusite city which is Jerusalem The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim northward. Then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the water of Nephpatah and extended to the cities of Mount Ephron. And the border went around to Bela, which is Kirjath Jerim. Then the border turned westward from Bela to Mount Seir, passed along to the side of Mount Jerim on the north, which is Cheselon, went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out to the side of Ekron northward. Then the border went around Shikron, passed along Mount Bela and extended to Jebniel and the border extended at the sea. And the west border was the coastline of the great sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah all according to their 
families. Amen. Everybody knows exactly what that all means, right? So pretty much what this is, is this is a long list of the boundaries of the tribe of Judah's land. And really what you end up with is you end up with a complete description of the area. Now, of course, for us, we would see this. We say, well, where are these things? And then the other problem becomes, when was this stuff written? And what is the reference point? Because you realize, like, if you look at maps of, say, America from the 1800s, it looks a lot different from the map of America in the early 1900s, which looks a lot different from a map of America in the 1950s, which looks a lot different from the map of America today, right? And so you can imagine that. I mean, was Vancouver, Washington here in the 1800s? It was, right? So, but was Kalama here? Yes, it was. But some other cities may not have been. Or cities move and cities get renamed. And so you have a unique set of dilemmas when it comes to exactly where this was. But what's really fascinating is that in Jacob's prophecy regarding Judah and his seed, it's actually that prophecy is remarkably fulfilled in the boundaries of what they were given. Now, first it said in Genesis chapter 49, that's where you can find that prophecy. In verses 8 and 9, that Judah would be surrounded by their enemies. And really, according to this list, the Moabites are on their east, the Edomites are on their south, the Amalekites are on their southwest, and the Philistines are on their west. So even as Jacob told Judah that he was going to be surrounded by his enemies, this map tells us exactly that that's exactly the case. Now, what's interesting also is that strong rulers such as King David helped them survive this. Now, In Genesis chapter 29, verses 11 and 12, it talks about how Judah was going to have great vineyards, and this land was actually ideally suited for the planting of vineyards, and the whole Judean valley was well known. And if you remember when the spies went into Numbers 13, the valley of Eshcol, they brought back all this great fruit, fruit that was so big, it took two people with a big thing to carry it. That was right from the land of Judah. So this land was already exceedingly fertile and perfect for planting vineyards. And then finally, of course, Judah was the tribe for which the Messiah would come. And sure enough, you find that that's exactly where Jesus was born in that exact same region and area. So really what you have is that their southern boundary, it's really from the south end of what we call the Dead Sea. Here it's called the Salt Sea. So the Dead Sea and the Salt Sea, the idea is is that it's that sea in Israel that has the highest concentration of salt in the world. For any sea, you, if you go into the Dead Sea, if you have been there to Israel, and it's really, it's quite a profound thing when you start walking in areas. And I remember when I went to the area of the Garden of Gethsemane on the east side of Jerusalem, and still to this day, there are olive groves everywhere. Because the word Gethsemane literally means olive press. So literally 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked, that same eastern slope outside of Jerusalem was completely covered with olives. That was where they made olive oil and wine and all these things, and it still looks like that to this day. So when you go over that area and you read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, it's quite powerful. You could still see, if you go to look at pictures of Jerusalem, there's this one gate. They call it the Golden Gate. And it's the gate that leads right onto the Temple Mount And that gate was always, the Jewish people believed that the Messiah would enter through that gate. So it was interesting, when Jerusalem was conquered, 
the Muslims actually cemented that gate in because there ain't no way the Messiah is going to come through that gate. So still to say, you still see it, it's golden, but it's cemented shut. What's amazing is the Messiah already walked through that gate. And he's going to walk through it again. But that's a different discussion for another day. But, but those are some of the things when you go to Israel and you notice these places. And so, so going to the Dead Sea, it's literally so salted that Israel is known for its great cosmetics predominantly because of all of the mineral reserves that are not only in the Dead Sea, but in the soil below it, because of the salt that sits in the water, it has allowed over centuries and centuries so much rich nutrients. The Israeli economy is really booming in cosmetics because of the mineral deposits that come from in and around the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. So you have that as its southern boundary. And of course, the northern boundary extends from like the northern tip of the Dead Sea westward to the Great Sea, which we would call the Mediterranean Sea. So if you've ever looked at a map and you see uh, the motherland for me, Italy, some of you, the Gr- Greece, that's in the Mediterranean Sea. That's my motherland, say the motherland. That's right. That's where I get my Italian food from. Anyway, different discussion. You know, and so the Great Sea was the Mediterranean Sea, which Israel is at the very end of it. So it's amazing. Like if we go to Israel together, um, the city of Joppa, which we know well for a couple of reasons. One, that's where Jonah went to catch a boat running away from the Lord. That's right there on the Mediterranean. Also, uh, Peter received an amazing revelation at the port city of Joppa. And so, you know, you go there and it overlooks the Mediterranean and it is quite gorgeous. So you have that northern border is, you know, from the northern end of the Dead Sea all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. And then... You have, uh, you know, two, uh, the, you know, bodies of waters that kind of become their limits on the sides. Now, what's also interesting here, and I, and I do think that it's fascinating, is that you notice that Jerusalem actually pops up in this list. In verse eight, it says, and the border went up to the valley of the son of Hinnom and the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is Jerusalem actually ends up to be within the tribe of Benjamin, which was the other more southern tribe. But the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, I wanted to make sure I commented on it because that word, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom in Hebrew is the word Gehenna, which we translate today as hell. Now, I want to explain to you why. And I think that these are some of the things that when you when you don't think about it until someone tells you it, then you start to think about it. The Valley of the Son of Hinnom. See, now, the discussion about the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, what's fascinating about that is that would push us towards a writing. Like, nobody knows who wrote the book of Joshua, right? But it would point us to a later writing of the book because the story of the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, there was a man named Hinnom who sacrificed his son to the pagan god Molech. And so God was so incensed by this child sacrifice to a pagan god that they were never allowed to settle the land and they made it the incinerator for all the trash of Jerusalem. So if you're sitting in Jerusalem and you walk out the gate to the south, you walk into, now it's a beautiful park and forest. You know, it's beautifully lush, but that was where they would take all the garbage from the city and burn it. The nearest gate, the gate that you would walk out of in Jerusalem 
to get to the valley of the son of Hinnom or Gehenna is what they call the dung gate, D-U-N-G. You know why they called it that? Because that's where you took the poop out. You know what I mean? Like it was really, that was the gate. And literally it would go on out into the valley right below Jerusalem. And that was where they would burn all the trash. And that's where the idea of Gehenna or hell being a place of fire. For them, Gehenna was, when you think of Gehenna, all you would think about was an incinerator. For the people in Jesus' day and before, it was always where the trash was and where the fires never were quenched. And so it becomes the perfect symbolism and picture for what life looks like separated from God. Now, here's the thing. I believe in a literal hell. And the reason I do believe that is because I believe the Bible. And I want to encourage you to believe the Bible because hell is what happens after this life. And there could be a million theories about it, but there's one person who has been there and back, and that is Jesus. You don't need anyone else to be like, I died and I went to heaven, and I'm going to tell you what happened, or I died, I went to hell, and I came back. I'm going to tell you. you don't need any of that because Jesus has already been there, and he knows what it is. And Jesus says that there is appointed a person once to die, and then the judgment. And that judgment, eternity which is a lot longer than whatever amount of life we get, goes to one of two places. Either heaven, which is where you dwell with God perpetually in newness of life, or hell, where you go to a place where although God still exists, God's blessings in no way is there, and it's a place of perpetual torment. Now, some people would say that that's a primitive belief. But no, it's a biblical belief, and I think we should have that belief. But the thing is, is that long before somebody goes to heaven or hell, on this side of eternity, I believe that not the biblical concept of the eternal abode, but each one of us has the opportunity to walk in heaven on earth or hell on earth as well. And what's interesting is the access to live heaven on earth, not in its fullness, but in a type and shadow, a forerunner, comes if you're in Christ, and I'm telling you, if you're outside of Christ, that whatever life you're living, you're actually living hell on earth, because you were designed to be in Christ, to walk in his spirit, and that whatever you enjoy, if you're outside of Christ, you realize that it's fleeting, but you realize it's actually all you're going to get, and so I think it's important to realize that, that's why Jesus said that we should pray Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you're in Christ today, then what God is offering you is he's offering you a taste of heaven on earth before you get to experience heaven in heaven. And if you're outside of Christ, what you're experiencing right now is hell on earth before you ultimately experience hell and hell. And what's fascinating is, as I watch what's going on in the world today, our world is seeing this at every turn. Jesus is real. As Pastor Daniel described today, some of the amenities and blessings associated with the land going to the tribe of Judah 
he drew a parallel between this life and the one you look forward to for all of eternity. God wants to reveal his kingdom to you and through you while you're still here on earth. God has incredible things in store for you as you continue to walk with him and follow his path in his perfect timing. Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today for Jesus is Real Radio. Hey, I wanted to remind you that each day on Facebook, Pastor Daniel shares a simple two-minute message. In this message, Pastor Daniel draws out an important biblical truth that really helps set your day on the right path. So be sure to follow Pastor Daniel Fusco on Facebook and share these two-minute messages with your friends and family. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will be sharing with you how God's words to the Israelites long ago still have truth and purpose in your life right now. The Israelites needed to learn lessons from their creator on trust, how they view themselves in light of the society they lived in, and what their relationships with other people should be. These are all things you face today, and God has the answers you're looking for. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through this series called Homestead. Until then, may God bless.